The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Millennials don't eat cereal. You know this, right? Spoons, milk, inability to countenance unyielding cardboard stairs of a toucan or a self-actualized tiger. Whatever it is, those millennials, they're freaks. Now we get news about millennials and buses, city buses, that news in a minute. But first, I just would like to note that this branding of generations is, of course, bullshit. Age cohorts behave like each other a little bit, but it's because of their times, the economy, technology. They all shape experiences. But when you do actual rigorous studies, it shows that generations are as distinct from each other or as similar to each other as, you know, people born in the year of the snake are to each other and people born in the year of the pig are to each other. It's mostly post hoc mythologizing. It also seems to me that the way we come up with traits for next generations is a little like the way civilizations, when they encounter other tribes or peoples, think of describing themselves or describing the other peoples. Like many native people's names for themselves are something like the real people or just the people. You know, and the place they're from is called the real land or as Alice Cooper informed us in Wayne's World. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. Now you are aware of that. So this is how we think of other generations when we talk about them. It's very quasi-anthropological. Although when we're inside that other generation, it's really just funny to see how these older people talk about us, right? Oh, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm going to get on my flannel shirt and mope along to my next appointment. So here's Thomas Prendergast, who's chairman of the MTA, announcing a plan for New York buses. These new buses will help meet our changing expectations of our customers. As more and more millennials enter the system and use it daily, as I said before, these are expectations, not desires on their part. Many of the young people using our system today grew up with a smartphone in one hand and a tablet in the other. They're demanding more Wi-Fi, more real-time information, more charging stations, more connectivity, more apps, more screens. So there were two takes on this announcement that all the new buses are going to have USB ports and Wi-Fi. One take was the older generation going, oh, you spoiled millennials. I think Prendergast was kind of counting on that take. But then the millennials spoke out, you know, as a generation tends to do, and said, let me tell you one thing millennials want more than a USB port. We want a freaking bus that runs on time. Well, yes, of course you do. But it's harder to get a bus that runs on time than a USB port. And let me tell you what I, as a non-millennial, am looking forward to in my bus of the future. Wi-Fi and a USB port. Also, I do have to say that what millennials really want is not bullshit Wi-Fi. They want some real working Wi-Fi. That is a must. It's got to actually work. Not like just show the thing and then you try to connect to it and it doesn't work and kicks you off when you try to watch a YouTube video. All right. So if you millennials actually can get for me Wi-Fi and a USB port, then I want to thank you. Or probably more accurately, I want to thank your reputation for convincing some older non-millennial that that's the thing you want. Because I am looking forward to surfing the internet as I am stuck in traffic on the M57 at 4 o'clock. Do millennials say surfing the internet anymore? Anyway, that is my dream on the show today. We are going to talk about the stuff dreams are made of with Maria Konnikova. And in the spiel, election coverage last night, they, they got it really right. I'm joking. I'll savage it like I do. But first, here's Maria.
Thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. So says Fleetwood Mac in the song Dreams. There are other songs about dreams that are actually about dreams, but I think Fleetwood Mac is the most ephemeral, dreamlike band, to quote, when speaking of dreams. And we are speaking of dreams with Maria Konnikova. She's the author of The Confidence Game, and uh, she joins me now to play our game, Is That Bullshit? And we're talking about the stuff you think about for about a third of the day if you're getting enough sleep. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. Dreams. We all have them, and I hate to dash them, but that's what we're going to do now. Let's look at, specifically, the analysis of dreams and what can they tell us. I'm going to stipulate it can't be nothing, right? Like, I don't want to hear your dreams, but maybe they mean something. Sure. So we have been trying to figure out exactly what they mean for hundreds of years. Right. I mean, Aristotle was trying to figure out what It would what seem that the mean. ancients, right, we've been dreaming as, as human beings, we've been dreaming, and probably our conversation about dreams has has started as soon as someone had one and was able to communicate and hasn't changed much since yesterday. Right. That's, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. And we've spoken before about Freud. So Freud had the first kind of real scientific theory of dreams in yeah. the 20th century. And he said, you know, there's latent content, which is what your dreams are really about. Then there's a dream interpreter that kind of makes that content okay for you. And that becomes your manifest content. Wait, so, so inside you have actually, your own? Yeah, you there's a dream own... interpreter in your brain. What's he look like? I'm not sure. I think. What's he wear? Probably red. I was thinking long flowing garments, but okay, okay, I can see what you're doing. All right. You're thinking more like an inside out kind of efficient, yeah, and yeah. I'm thinking more like an ethereal guardian exactly. from the Marvel Universe. But you're probably right, you know. You, you have a degree <laughs> in psychology. Or I, psychiatry I, d- I, d- or I do, I do. What, do you, what is your degree in? Psychology. Psychology, okay, very good. <laughs> um, and, and so. Then we have the, our manifest content, which is what we actually see in the dreams. Mm-hmm. And so then what the role of the psychologist, psychiatrist, whoever's interpreting your dreams, the dream interpreter um, on the outside is, is to figure out, to go backwards. To Does get it help back him to, the, to wear red? Probably, to get in yes. That mindset. Yeah. To get to the latent content. So that's what Freud believed. Yeah. And that was one of the leading theories for a long time. And by the way, the interpretation of dreams, his big book is fascinating. He had all these just wonky ideas, and everything longs a penis, obviously. Everything's around is a vagina, et cetera, et cetera. So he went a, a little bit in that direction. But that's what he thought that our brain was trying to work through things that are repressed through our dreams. We've advanced a little bit since then. Mm -hmm. So there was some work that was done by Robert Stickhold, and he's still working on this to try to figure out, well, is there sort of a physiological function? Or do do our dreams actually do anything? And he found that, yes, first of all, they're very good for memory. Memory consolidation happens during dreaming rather than during different parts of your sleep. It's REM sleep. And the way he did that, it was actually a really cool study. He worked with amnesic patients. So he had them learn to play Tetris. This was in the early 90s. It still could be good today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so there were people who did have amnesia and others who didn't. And then he put them to sleep and woke them up during their dreams and asked them to report their dreams. And the amnesic patients obviously didn't remember learning Tetris, but said, oh, there are some shapes. They started describing Tetris. They were actually playing Tetris, and their dreams had no idea. Did that. they know the song? Bum, bum, nope. Bum, 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 bum. Right. But the ones who had those dreams actually were better the next day. Their, their learning of Tetris improved. Ah. So, so he showed that was pretty smart because they couldn't be making it up the way that people yeah. who, who don't have amnesia could. So that was kind of the first part. But we still don't know, you know, does, you know, what, if you dream about a wolf, what yeah. are you a wolf losing his teeth, because we know right. losing your teeth is castration anxiety, right? Is that it? <laughs> Dr. Freud. A lot of people dream so, of losing their teeth. I think it's just do. general anxiety. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, 
what is it what does it actually mean so today we have some people who say it means nothing there is really a theory that says it's just random noise and you just make it up um and there's one very very depressing study that actually that basically woke people up with a very large noise right at the beginning of of dreams and you can see when dreaming starts because you can actually see REM REM sleep begin and they would start telling you these elaborate dreams that happened after the they would say there was an earthquake and then and they would tell you this whole story but they couldn't have dreamt it because they were woken up at the earthquake they were woken up at the first sound and so the scientists said well then dreams don't mean anything we just make we just make up a plausible story what i say to that is but why are you making up that story you know there actually there actually might be something to that so we are still trying to figure out what the exact meaning is but we do know it's good for memory we also know that it's actually probably good for problem solving and making decisions a lot of people after they sleep know the answers to like life problems like should i take that job they suddenly have a very clear knowledge of whether or not they should. I think you get bursts of insight and, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say 90% of the uh, things that come to you in dreams are awful. But every once in a while, do you remember when I had that dream, Andrea, about uh, Joe Biden saying go diagonal? That's going to pay off someday. I don't know what that meant. So, so yes, I think you could have flashes of insight. It's a way to think mm-hmm. in a different way than you would think if you were thinking about thinking. Yeah. An, an undistracted or differently distracted way of thinking. Absolutely. I mean, we also know that what happens with people who use certain types of drugs and also who drink is they stop dreaming. Yeah. They no longer have REM sleep. And the first thing to rebound, and that's actually the first thing to rebound when you're sleep deprived too, is REM sleep, not any of the other stages. And so that's a really interesting question. That's why you sometimes you have, you know, delirium tremors and stuff like that, where you not start, me, but some. right, yeah. where you start having vivid hallucinations when you're withdrawing from alcohol, because you're dreaming so much. Oh, wow. your, your brain is actually just in this intensive REM sleep. And so to me, that says it must mean like there must be some deeper functions of the dream state as such. Yes. Um, and we, you know, other than memory, that there must be something else that that's going on at that specific stage of sleep that we really need to catch up on it. We don't have a definitive answer as to what that is. There are lots of theories out there. I think we're, we might be able to find out in the next decade. Now, let me ask you, um, there are some common dreams that people have, and I think there's consensus about what they mean. So we already talked about losing your teeth. Mm-hmm. That's generalized anxiety. What about the classic in your underwear or Showing up naked at school or work again, anxiety, mm-hmm. and I think I think anxiety is actually a big part of our dreams. Right. One theory is that we play out different scenarios, so that dreams are a place of working out different things that might happen. They're kind of our future generator. So then we're prepared for real life. We've actually figured out a lot of these different scenarios, and we're also less anxious because it's not as bad as that worst case scenario that you played out in your dream. And what about that other common dream that I think we all have, the gist is asked to replace meet the press, but all the guests are Bolivian and the content is in Spanish. What does that mean? Well, um, I think that we have to go back to castration anxiety <laughs> yes. for that one. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask dreams are bullshit, as you've uh, uh, pointed out. There are several uses of them, but the interpretation of dreams, can insight be gleaned from that? Is that bullshit? Sort of, yes, in the sense that we have really we we have zero evidence that the way that we interpret dreams in the classic schools of dream interpretation actually mean 
what we think it means. That said, it's it can be a very useful exercise because if we're doing a lot of these things in our dreams, living through anxieties, playing out future scenarios, then maybe the dreams are we don't need to interpret them that much. Maybe they're actually just telling us what we need to know. Yeah. You know, maybe we we know that we're anxious about that test. We know that this is happening and that makes us better able to deal with real life. Follow-up question. I had a dream that one day black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles will join hands with all of God's children and sing free at last, free at last. Thank God we are free at last. Is that bullshit? Um, I think that you've been communing with Jung and you're doing some archetypal things where you're actually dreaming the dreams of other people. I dreamed a dream of life gone by. Anyway, I was young and he took my childhood in his stride. I don't want to get into it here, but I want to thank you, Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game. She plays as that bullshit with us. She has a dream come true in so many respects. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high and life worth living I dreamed that love would never die And now the spiel math mentum. Hillary wins big. Hillary expands her nearly insurmountable lead. Hillary crushes in the South and comes close in the North. We're not headlines from yesterday, though they all are true. The headlines were that Bernie Sanders won a slim but shocking, yes, shocking victory in Michigan. And yeah, Hillary won by almost 150,000 votes in Mississippi. But the big thing is she lost by 20,000 in Michigan, which led Andrea Mitchell to ask this question. What happened last night in Michigan? That clip, that Andrea Mitchell clip I just played, is available on your NBC family of networks alongside some other clips about this topic. Let me read you their names. Chuck Todd, colon, Sanders' win is a reminder to Hillary Clinton that she has work to do. Remember, Hillary Clinton won last night. Here's another clip. What's next for Hillary Clinton's strategy after losing Michigan? I don't know, reminding MSNBC that she won Mississippi. And this one, Clinton campaign continues to push forward. How freaking brave after a winning night to keep pushing forward. We have this abstract, subjective thing called surprise or a boost or momentum. And then we have this empirical thing called a voting total. But we don't talk about the actual thing that we're doing, which is counting votes. We talk about the possible feelings that might arise if we talk about the actual thing in a totally backward way. Momentum. What is momentum? Actually, in physics, momentum isn't a subjective thing. There's a formula for momentum. And that formula is velocity times mass equals momentum. So maybe you can argue that the velocity does belong to Bernie. You know, he gained ground in Michigan in the last couple of days. Sure, I'll give you a little of the velocity. But remember the formula for momentum. It's velocity times math. So even if he arguably has whatever we want to call velocity in politics, he doesn't have the mass. The mass is the sheer number. And the sheer numbers are in Hillary's favor. She got more delegates. Now, if you, like me, watched a lot of these recap shows after the vote, you were confronted with the idea that getting delegates, that's somehow not as fair as 
getting momentum or having the wind at your back. I mean, really, what are delegates? I know there's this thing called delegate math. What is delegate? Is that like a type of soup? I don't understand delegate math. We're allowed in this society to say, I don't understand math. So you, you pair math with something, you really degrade that something. As Steve Kornacki was saying on MSNBC, it, it just gets kind of weird. Well, I'll give you something weird. This is a huge night for Bernie Sanders. He just won the biggest state he's won yet. He just won Michigan. Let's take through, take you through what it means for the delegates, though, because maybe it's not what you think. I think Steve is right. It's not what you think because of what everyone else on MSNBC was telling you. But it's not weird. Steve realizes it's not weird. He does math on the TV screen on real time, which I guess disqualifies him from hosting the Today Show, which is a callback to yesterday. But nothing about this is weird. There's another word for this that accurately describes what's going on, and that word isn't weird. That word is fair. It is fair what is going on. It is just what's going on. It is quite appropriately democratic. So when Steve says, but this is why it is so hard to make up a 200 uh, delegate gap in that pledged count. Yeah, it is hard. And so I guess that seems unfair, but it should be hard. It should be hard for the same reason that when a team goes up by 21 points, it's hard to make a comeback because that team earned those 21 points. Pledge delegates are proportional to the vote. They're not mysterious. They're not attached to a thing called math. They're just stand-ins for the vote. And right now, Hillary Clinton is close to having had 2 million more people vote for her than have voted for Bernie Sanders. It seems unfair if this thing stopping Bernie is an abstraction called delegate math. But since delegate math just is the vote, it's accurate to say that Getting fewer votes is stopping Bernie from beating Hillary. Now, I'm not talking about superdelegates here. I'm just talking about pledged delegates. Yesterday, Hillary Clinton got 88 pledged delegates. Bernie got 70, which means she got 55% of the delegates. Yesterday, vote total, Hillary Clinton, 756,246. Bernie Sanders, 628,600. So she got 55% of the delegates. Guess what? She also got 55% of the vote. Math, momentum, winning states, but losing ground. You know, when something is poorly covered, like Flint or weapons of mass destruction, we often mean it's insufficiently covered. Yet every network, every outlet is going wall to wall on the election. And some single digit percentage of outlets do the minimal thing of getting it right and telling you how primaries are won and who is actually winning. I'll do it here for you. What is won? Delegates are won, not states. How do you win delegates? You get people to vote for you. Well, what if momentum nets you a surprising but narrow victory in a delegate-rich state? Congratulations, you just inspired an exciting sentence, and your message is being heard throughout the land as you defy expectations and stand up to the establishment, and that is awesome. But can you go do that over there? Because someone else has a nomination to win. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi will only ride in steam locomotives that can reheat a pizza at the same time. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, will not set foot in a Zeppelin or dirigible that won't also poach an egg. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, takes funiculars equipped with sleeper cars that charge their own electric blankets and hot pots. The gist, you know... 
that tire swinging from that old elm, it's actually powering a blender. And it is that blender that is in turn making milkshakes. And while it has been asserted that it is those milkshakes that have been bringing the boys to the yard, it really is the tire swing bringing the boys to the yard. For too long, we have mistaken the milkshake yard attendance correlation for causation. Umperu, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening.